Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. After a dramatic and somewhat surreal arraignment that was covered from Mar-a-Lago to Manhattan like O.J. Simpson's Bronco Crawl, we now know the contours of the criminal charges that confront the former president. Or actually, we don't quite yet, because New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg's indictment turned out to be a bet-hedging document that leaves it to upcoming proceedings to specify its animating theory. That feature left many commentators dissatisfied with the charges, but in an accompanying statement of facts and public remarks, Bragg positioned the case as an extended and very Trumpian scheme designed to conceal damaging facts from the American public in the final week before a razor-close presidential election. Trump himself was glum and glowering in court before returning to Mar-a-Lago to whip up supporters with incendiary rhetoric targeting Bragg and the judge that if it continues will put him on a collision course for a gag order backed with the prospect of contempt and even a short prison stay. Three other criminal investigations and several hard-hitting civil suits against the former president continued to advance. Most notably, DOJ Special Counsel Jack Smith chalked up court victories requiring testimony from Mark Meadows and Mike Pence, whose words alone could convict Trump of breathtaking crimes against the Republic. Pence signaled he would not appeal and likely has a date with the grand jury in his near future while Meadows may further stonewall by taking the Fifth Amendment. Elsewhere around the country, the bitter national divides over cultural flashpoints roiled the nation most visibly in Tennessee, where the bare-knuckled ouster from the legislature of two young African-Americans for joining in protest over gun violence produced the most vivid images of Southern reactionary intimidation since the civil rights era and the billion-dollar-plus defamation suit against Fox News Corp hurtled forward to imminent trial. To sort through the rubble from the explosive last week and look ahead to the minefields on the horizon, we welcome a great group of deeply knowledgeable commentators. And they are... Allison Camerata, a journalist, author, and anchor of CNN Newsroom weekdays from 2 to 4 p.m., in her 30-year career, she's won countless accolades, I'll say, including two Emmy Awards for her news coverage. And in 2017, she published her debut novel, Amanda Wakes Up, which was selected by NPR as one of the best books of the year. Welcome back to Talking Feds, Allison Camerata. Great to see you, Harry. Jason Kander, the president of the National Expansion and Veterans Community Project, a nonprofit dedicated to fighting veteran suicide and homelessness. After serving in the Army in Afghanistan, Jason was elected to the Missouri State Legislature and later became Missouri Secretary of State in 2012, making him, I think, the first millennial elected to statewide office. He currently hosts the popular podcast Majority 54, and we covered his really excellent book that I recommend to all, Invisible Storm, a Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD, really fantastic, candid, thoughtful, et cetera, in a Talking Books episode last year. Jason, really nice to see you. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me here. 
and Sam Stein, the deputy managing editor for politics at Politico, where he covers the White House and the lead up to the 2024 election. Previously, he served as politics editor at the Daily Beast and White House correspondent and politics editor at Huffington Post. He's also a longtime MSNBC contributor and a first time guest to Talking Feds. Thanks so much for being here, Sam. Harry, it is an honor and a pleasure. <laughs> All right. Let's begin with, I guess, the history-making news of the charges against Donald Trump from Alvin Bragg and a Manhattan grand jury. And I don't want to delve into the legal sufficiency of the indictment or anything like that, though that does pose some intricate questions. But just generally, I'd say majority of commentators seem to believe the case is strong, but there's a pretty strong minority of criticism of the indictment on different grounds, but the main one I'd say is for a supposed triviality. So David Frum writing The Atlantic says, the actual crimes charged in this particular indictment look awfully technical. What do you think? Fair are the charges what prosecutors might call righteous? Harry, aren't you the lawyer? Uh, <laughs> I thought you guys would each try, and then I'll give you the actual answer after. I'm a recovering lawyer, but... Uh, <laughs> that's, that's right. You know, then I'm... you go first, Jason. No, but it's a non-lawyer's question, seriously. Does this feel righteous to you? Uh, I don't know if it feels righteous, but the number that I saw this week, the polling number that I saw that I thought said the most about this was the one that somehow or another showed that the vast majority of Americans were not familiar with the particulars of the indictment, but 60% yeah. of them supported the indictment. To me, what that means is that most people are like, I know the guy did crimes <laughs> and I'm not exactly sure what they are, but I'm generally supportive of him being held accountable for crimes. And then everything else is going to be, I don't even think it's going to be about what a jury is going to be cool with because look, we're looking at a jury trying Trump unless he gets it moved to Staten Island with a pretty strong case. Which he'll try by the way. Yeah, he'll yeah. try. But other than that, I think it's really just going to come down to what happens to the case before it gets to the jury when it comes to a judge. But as far as like, the court of public opinion, which I think is what you're asking about, that's the number that sticks out to me. 60% of people are saying, I support the indictment. And the vast majority of people asked are like, I don't really know anything about the indictment. And that to me says a lot about how people feel about the last several years. Well, the number that sticks out to me is 219. And I think I'm quoting that right, though I don't have my notes with me. But when I found out that Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, had charged this case, I mean, these similar crimes, 219 times in the 15 months since he's become the DA. Uh, clearly, he's not just going after Donald Trump for some sort of political persecution. These are crimes. The falsifying of business records is apparently a crime that the Manhattan DA charges all the time. There have been lots of other individuals and corporations that have been charged with this. So yes, is it a novel to connect it to campaign finance laws? Sure. But in terms of falsifying business records, that's a real crime. They didn't make that up out of thin air. So when I heard how often they do it, that I thought put the lie to they've just concocted something out of whole cloth for Donald Trump. It might be novel to connect it to campaign finance law, but I, I suppose the novelty is that this was a case where someone committing an alleged business crime was running a campaign. And that doesn't always happen, right? The context of this was the 2016 election. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, so forgive me for you know my ignorance on this. But you know, I do cover some politics. And sometimes I just kind of step back and, and think about it from the 30,000-foot perspective. It's bewildering in a way, right? It's like the fact that this man was running for president 
involved in a hush money payment to a porn star, you kind of step back and you're like, this really happened. You know, regardless of like the legality of it, that is what happened. And, it, you know, in any other time period or universe, I suspect that this would be wildly disqualifying and certainly scandalous. And I, it is obviously scandalous now, but you just think like, man, things have changed so dramatically in our politics that this is now par for the course. I mean, this was obviously a big story and it's historic and all that, but like, it should be seismic. It really should be seismic. Sam, to your point is, it's just weird how not weird this is. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is the royal this that stands for so many. So look, I mean, Allison, I think your pushback is right. You know, there was so much criticism before anyone saw the charges. Without getting too legal, I think it is fair to say the charges are bewildering or they're very sort of Delphic. He had a choice and every all lawyers were waiting. How's he going to frame this? And the answer is basically, I'll tell you later. But I think, Sam, that your point is the right one, or at least it's what I was thinking about. You don't have a big tailwind when you're talking unproved theory and porn star. But what Frag's trying to do, and I think it is righteous, is frame it on a broader footing where... Shit, this could have been pivotal in the whole election. This was a scheme, not an accounting error, not a, even just a single payoff, but an overall scheme devised in advance so that when women came out of the woodwork because they'd have an electoral hit on him, all the more so after Access Hollywood, he would conceal it, cover it up, and the best evidence that Bragg brought forward is just till after the election, he said, mm -hmm. you know, so Trumpian, eh, let's just go to after the election, then we don't even have to pay her at all. But, you know, the basic idea here that I hope hits home, but it will be as against a cacophony of, you know, Republican opposition is this is really about another crime against democracy, a Trumpian crime, a scheme. And that, I think, is what gives it muscle and righteousness. But I will tell you, and we won't talk about it anymore, there's some head-scratching elements to the law part that I think he'll come through on. But I was expecting, as were others, something sort of more developed after he had mothballed it a year ago. Harry, can I tell you what, to me, the most novel and interesting part of this from a spectating standpoint has been, it's been watching the Republicans, particularly the ones that want to run for president or be a player at the national level, who have had to come on shows like Allison's and talk to people like Allison and do this special dance, which Allison, I'd be interested in like what you're thinking is when this happens, because here's what they're doing. I'm watching them think around the corners where they're like, okay, I don't actually want to defend Trump in this case for two reasons. One, he did this thing. <laughs> Part B of that is like, I don't really want to talk about this. This thing and look like I'm defending it. And then like reason number two is I want to be president. And so I would love it if down the line, this were such a weight around his neck that I don't have to deal with him and we can all move forward. Right. But at the same time, I am deeply fearful of the Frankenstein monster that is MAGA that me and my friends have created. And so I have to put on a show of being very upset with Alvin Bragg. So I'm going to throw out the word Soros a couple of times. I'm going <laughs> to use terms like anti-crime, which is a hilarious thing to call a prosecutor. And, uh, uh, and then I'm going to just pretend that I'm not talking about the leader of right. my party illegally, it appears, paying off a porn star. So I've been really enjoying watching that little tiptoe that they've been doing with you and others, Allison. Yeah, I thought the most interesting point of this whole saga from a political standpoint came when Ron DeSantis first did weigh in on yeah. it. And, you know, he tried, I think, in, in some clever fashion to try to thread the needle and talk about, well, you know, Alvin Bragg and Soros and all that stuff. But, you know, I don't know what it's like to get a 
associated with a porn star, which I'm glad he clarified that. <laughs> Even that, this is like tepid sort of criticism. Seven eighths yeah. of the way, and he got clobbered, right? Yeah. It was unbelievable to watch the reaction to it. You know, the the collective avalanche of criticism to DeSantis. It wasn't Trump that was the problem here for finding himself in this situation and, you know, getting the party in this mess as it's in now. It was DeSantis for, for merely suggesting, again, that maybe it's weird that the leading presidential candidate paid hush money to a porn star. And I just, again, I go back to how surreal it is that he's the one who messed up by doing that type of criticism. But Allison, please, like they're saying it to you. I'd love to know what you're thinking when they're. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of curious. Yeah, well, Jason, you've nailed it. I mean, you've nailed it. The contortions that they're going through. They don't want to boost President Trump, but they definitely know that they have to be on his side somehow against the deep state and against this, as you say, like progressive prosecutor who's Soros funded, who's not directly Soros funded, as we know. And all that stuff, the contortions are so strange. Only Mitt Romney. I mean, Mitt Romney is the actual person who's talking about character, and he actually threaded it well. He was like, I don't know about the strength of the case, but this man does not have the character to be ever be elected again. Like, he did it right, but of course he's not running. I don't know what Nikki Haley's position is. I'd be interested to know about that. But it's just what you said. I mean, I too, like you, don't understand the backbends that they feel they have to go through to somehow still be on the side of Trump. They have such an opening. I mean, they have a chasm that they could walk through to be like, are we done? Can we not do better, folks? Can we? Can our party not do better than having to deal with all this Michigas? But they don't seize on it. And one thing that I wanted to ask about- Hold on, saying, love the word Michigas there. Thank yeah. you for that. On Passover, very important. We're going for five <laughs> natural Yiddish words and thing. We're at word one. Okay, okay. Sam, yeah. in terms of how weird the unweirdness of this is, I wonder- if people had known, if they hadn't hushed this up before the election, if this had come on the heels of the Access Hollywood, grab them by the P word, would that have swayed things? I don't know anymore. I, my brain has been so scrambled that if he survived Access Hollywood, would paying off a, like in other words, everybody knew that Trump was a playboy, was a womanizer. That was always part of his brand. I mean, he prides himself on it, as we know. And so I don't even know anymore if that would have derailed it. My antenna is so messed up too, right? Like I have no clue and no one should take any predictions or analysis I say with any seriousness. I'm wrong all the time. But that being said, <laughs> it couldn't have helped, right? Like I suppose all these things matter on the margins. For all his um, muscle that he has within the Republican Party, I think it is worth noting that he's deeply flawed, right? Like he lost both popular elections really badly. The party has done, you know, historically poorly because of him. Now, the 2016 election had some serious variables going for it. It's tough to say whether that would have impacted it in the end if James Comey was more important than a porn star hush money payment. But, you know, it doesn't help, I, I suppose. Just that it's tough to say, though. I mean, yeah, I mean yeah, yeah. it's really important in so many ways I'm feeling these last couple of weeks to try to remember things in the time they happen. So... I was on the ballot, so I have a theory. Yeah, there you go. Right. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> at the moment that this was going on, at the moment that the Comey letter came out, I was leading a U.S. Senate race in Missouri, which I got the silver medal in, ultimately. So I can tell you what I think would have happened. That election was one, although we did not know it at the time. At the time, we thought Hillary Clinton's going to blow him out. Right. 
But it turned out that was actually much more like a football game between two amazing offenses without good defenses. It was going to be who had the ball at the end and where was the momentum. And it turned out that the ball at the end was in Trump's hand because of the Comey letter. So it really, I think, depends on the timing. Had this come out, and there's two aspects to this, had it come out after the Comey letter, I think a lot of things go differently in that election. But it depends on this, which is if he reacts to it the way that he did the Access Hollywood tape ultimately, not the initial reaction, but the, you know what, never mind, it's locker room talk, right. then he probably survives it because his problem was when he went in apologizing, people thought he was weak and it hurt his momentum. And that's what Bannon told him at that stretch. But that's not what I think would have happened. Had it come out, what would have come out was that he was trying to pay her off. And that's what I think would have been a problem for him because nothing could look weaker for him than that. And I do think that very well could have been the thing that swung the election. That's so smart, Jason. That's really helpful because it's helpful to go back into that moment and remember that there were all these, you know, October surprises that were body blows to the different campaigns and that that would have been different. I think you're right that the Access Hollywood thing was such a shock. And then his reaction was so confusing. And then if there had been another one on top of that after the James Comey letter, that might have changed history. But this is the conversation to have and, and not is it an accounting error or even is it one payoff. It could have swayed an election. That makes it, I think, pretty serious. I'll go out of my lane now because I want to follow up on something. Jason said that this general dilemma for Republican candidates who like, I got to somehow either bring home the MAGA faithful or somebody else has to take them down. So what about Mike Pence this week? You have a candidate in the race now, Asa Hutchinson, who's, I think, going to be a validly not following the, the line of, you know, slavishly praising Trump and, and demeaning the prosecution. But so Pence, after saying he will defend to the death, throws in the towel and he's going to testify. Did you take that as a, you know, he's seeing around a different corner now and thinking it's my only real shot is to now help bring him down, and that's the play I'm making? He got the most attention so far. First of all, this is all the premise of this is that he's not going to win, okay? Yeah, but, but he might not know that, but right. He being Pence. Pence probably knows in his heart of hearts he's not going to be a nominee, but, you know, there's a chance to make a name for himself and I suppose, you know, refurbish a reputation in the future and so on. But, you know, it's notable. His people know this too, that, like, the most attention he ever gets is when he does criticize Trump. I mean, the, the speech he gave at the um, White Tail dinner, the DC Insider dinner, um, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, gridiron. Maybe. Yeah, the Whatever. gridiron dinner. Yeah. He gave the speech at the gridiron dinner, a room full of journalists, and he goes off on Trump about January 6th. And like, that was the most attention he's gotten. Privately, his people concede that they know that they can break through the Trump media dominated ecosystem if he goes after Trump. I think he's done this in a sort of astute and shrewd way in that he's resisted testifying. He's uh, created these sort of novel pushbacks to these subpoenas that he was the president of the Senate and therefore this is the speech and debate clause. And You know, he's done everything he can to sort of signal that while he would love to testify, he's, you know, not constitutionally allowed to do it. And then finally he gets like this, this out and he's like, oh, yeah. I'll do it, I guess. I don't think he particularly likes Donald Trump. The guy who tried to kill him? Yeah, the guy who said him off. He's like, I'm sore at that fella. <laughs> he was <laughs> reckless. <laughs> I have a 
bone to pick. Yeah. But anyways, to my point, there's a sense within his orbit that this is both the right thing to do. And if there's ever like a political lane that he could fill, this is it. I don't understand Mike Pence. I never have. I don't <laughs> mm-hmm. understand him. I, even when he talks, like I've interviewed him one on one. I don't understand what he's saying. I think he hypnotizes me <laughs> while he's talking. I can't understand what he stands for, what he's saying. I know what people say he stands for, but then why go work for Donald Trump? And why right. not speak out about the vulgarity of Donald Trump and how offensive he is when he makes fun of disabled reporters and tells people to yeah. punch other people in the face? Have any of you ever gone back and watched any of the clips from Mike Pence's career as a talk radio conservative? Right, yes. right, right. Yeah. Has anybody ever seen it? No, what's it like? It's a completely different person. I would encourage you to go check him out because it is exact. It fits conservative talk radio. It is not the version of Mike Pence that we all have met over the last almost a decade because that version is the guy from those clips doing a Ronald Reagan impression. That's who. That's who you don't understand, (laughs) Allison. When he talks to you, is is that guy muting himself and doing a Ronald Reagan impression? And so, Sam, the thing you said that I would disagree with is is that Mike Pence knows he's not going to be the nominee because I can tell you as someone who was once afflicted by the I'm running for president sickness, you see your path. Now, the problem that Mike Pence has, probably that's plural, I'll pick one, (laughs) is that he can see his path, but he doesn't have the courage to put all his chips in on the actual path. And you see politicians do this all the time. There's a win scenario for Mike Pence. There's one only. That's not plural, right? Right. There's one win scenario, and it in no way does it involve people seeing him as an ally of Donald Trump, because that's never going to happen. You were Donald Trump's vice president, and he tried to kill you, and (laughs) his people hate you. Like, don't waste your time with that. Your win scenario is get the largest possible share you can of the people who don't want Trump and want someone who could stand up against him. And you have a perfect opportunity to do that, but you have no opportunity to just win under the old playbook and be like, well, I was vice president and you liked what we did in the Trump administration. That's not going to work, but he doesn't have the courage to do that because he's a man who does an impression of another man every waking moment of his life. (laughs) And hope that someone else takes down the MAGA crowd. Try to sprinkle a little Yiddish in your answers here. He has chutzpah, but not really. There you go, too. All right. <laughs> I'm wondering to Jason, I was like, have you ever seen anyone who's as committed to the bit? Like, he never breaks character. It's pretty remarkable. Maybe Will Ferrell? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It, it is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Zach Galifianakis, they both commit really well. But And Mike Pence, they're, they're all, I'm sure they hang out. That's Michigan, number one. Yeah. Number two, that's crazy. I can't wait to go watch it because I have never been able to pierce the veneer. There's no question that I can ever pose that gets in there and sees like what's really happening behind the, you know, robotic disguise or whatever that is, persona. So I can't wait to hear back when he was a real person. By the way, was he alone in a room with you? I thought he wouldn't do that. No, are you crazy? No, we were, we were surrounded by like right, and right. aides and my producer. <laughs> oh my God. There's just three Muppets in there working the arms. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's what's happening. All right, let's go to the rest of the crowd though, because everyone else, even DeSantis for now anyway, is in lockstep. But I don't think we've seen the end of the charges, and God knows what genuinely threatening behavior Trump does as he's railing against the prosecution. Are they in for a penny in for everything? They're all going to stay behind him as as he gets more and more sort of antisocial. At some point, all of them have to get at least lukewarm, no? 
Well, it's sort of the paradox of Trump, right? It's, yeah. you know, he's the strongest in the Republican Party at the time it's when he's the weakest nationally. I mean, anytime yeah. he's under scrutiny or attack or legal peril, he's got this gift where he can turn himself into a martyr. And anyone who crosses him within the Republican ranks becomes persona non grata. I mean, putting aside how you feel about the guy, that is his political gift. So I think the more that these investigations mount, the harder it is to dislodge him from the party. And I just don't foresee an off-ramp, to put it mildly, unless he like literally goes to jail. And then you're like in a real constitutional crisis about whether he can run. And you could see some Republicans being like, this is totally crazy. Like, we can't do this. Let's like get our bearings. Hmm. Sam, what do you think about in terms of the rest of the field and who can you know, get into the mud and like stir it up with him in an effective way. I've heard like Chris Christie. Like, <laughs> There's like this myth that Chris Christie's going to just come in as a kamikaze yeah. warrior here. And like, I like uh, this just, myth. Yeah. And just like the sole purpose of his campaign would be to take out Trump. But I don't know. I guess I just don't, I have not been able to sort of conceive of a scenario in which someone gets into the mud with Trump and emerges victorious. You know, I guess there's a, a scenario where it's just a one-on-one race and like the majority of the party decides that that's not, this is not what they want, but that's not what exists. We're not going to have a one-on-one race. And so it's just very difficult to imagine a scenario where Trump does not emerge as the nominee absent something remarkable happening on the legal fronts, but something remarkable has happened on the legal front and his numbers have just gone up. Yeah, that is the crazy thing. But on the other hand, What's his calculation here? Let's say it's all true. His numbers keep going up. He sails to the nomination. But he's like all in on having to win, no? I mean, if he's not president, like he's maybe in the pokey. He's not a strategic thinker, I've long since concluded. But, you know, he's in this funny dynamic where he can scream all he wants. But then there's the law. And I think he has maybe off-ramps, maybe no pardons in New York or Georgia, but maybe off-ramps if he wins the presidency. Otherwise, he's just, you know, digging a deeper hole every day, it seems. He is not running for the White House. He's running for For executive immunity. Right. That's why he announced so early. And that's why, you know, a lot of people said, well, this is going to help him. And it's not going to help him long term. But yes, like his numbers have gone up and he's raised money recently because it has put him up against Biden, right? And that's what he wants in this moment. And they're doing his bidding for him because they're saying it's a political prosecution. It's They are elevating him past the primary for this moment, for this month and a half or however yeah. long this part goes, because they're making it a political prosecution, Democrats versus Trump. If it's Democrats versus Trump, then it's not he's not down here in the muck with the rest of us running in the Republican primary. It's the same thing that happened in 2016 in a way, but it's worse for them because in 2016, it was somebody else is going to take care of this for us, right? The media, who we all claim to hate, is going to expose this guy and then we won't have to deal with him. It's going to happen any minute. We don't have to do it. And then if not them, the Democrats will land a hit on him. And so we won't have to worry about it, but it never happened. And now you have that scenario combined with the fact that they're looking at it and going, okay, what happens if he actually goes into Iowa and loses? Is there a scenario that we imagine where Donald Trump gives a concession speech in Iowa that's like, oh, looks like we came up short this time. No, he's just going to be like, we were cheated out of it. Now the Republicans don't count the votes correctly either. And I'm running as the third party candidate. It's a sticky wicket 
for them. Uh, he's got to double shame. down, redouble, redouble, redouble. Couldn't so. have happened to a nicer bunch of folks. I mean, it's such <laughs> a shame. Go. But he is a short-term thinker, right? Like, it's just what gets yeah, him I through think the that's day. Right. Uh, and so, you know, he'll solve those problems later if he needs to. The operating motto of the Trump administration was just get to tomorrow. And it's still how he works. Oh, for sure. I mean, he's completely impulsive. I mean, he's a walking id, as we know. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, but also to Jason's point, he doesn't have to have a winning strategy. It doesn't matter if he loses. He claims he didn't lose, as yeah, we've right. all seen. So it doesn't matter if he wins or loses. It's all the same. All right. From the ridiculous to the sublime for a moment. You know, we saw, we had a week where the first time a former president under indictment, under arrest, your general reactions as an American to the, you know, historical or social significance of that moment. Even as to that moment, you have his defenders saying banana republic, you have his detractors saying fully civilized return of the rule of law. Well, discuss. All right. Well, I'll tell you. I'm all for Clint. Yeah. <laughs> nice. We're, I think we're at four. <laughs> there was a moment where it was an aerial shot from a chopper of his motorcade heading to the Manhattan DA's office. And there were these black cars and it was going down like the, I don't know, FDR or the Westside Highway yeah. or something. And I don't know how to explain it, but I had a visceral... I don't want this to sound partisan because it wasn't. It could have been anybody, really. Uh -huh. I wasn't thinking about who was in that car. It was a patriotic reaction where in this country, a former president is going to show up at the appointed time at the Manhattan DA's office because that's how we do it in this country. You can't... He wasn't driving the wrong way. There was an apparatus. I think it was that there was an apparatus that was making this happen. And so the Secret Service was making it happen, the Manhattan DA's office, the press was waiting. We have a system for our judicial adjudication. And there was something about that, you know, compared to obviously so many other countries that I thought, you know, it still works. Man, I really appreciate your ability to find goodness in that moment. You found it risable? I mean, seriously, it w there was something dignified about it. Not this motorcade, but, you know. Yeah, I suppose. I, I found it like absurd and surreal, too. But it don't, yeah. no, that's true. The, the, the rule of law, at least for now, has uh, been maintained. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I think that's important. Fair enough, fair enough. My jaded soul. I apologize. Jason, what was your feeling? Oh, I had a feeling, but it wasn't as good as what you said. I just <laughs> liked what you said better. You know, what I was thinking about was how the day that the news finally broke that he was indicted, I, I said to my wife, Diana, I was like, hey, Trump got indicted today. And she goes, no, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so to me, it was more like- Can you pick up the kids, please? Yeah, it was, it was more like, not that she didn't care, right. but it was more like, it's just been such a run up to it. I guess what was amazing to me was that it was expected. Which is sort of similar, I think, to your point, Allison. But it, mine was less inspiring, and so I like yours more. Thank you. What she said. Okay, um, let's just switch gears a little to more Donald Trump problems, because you know, while we were focused breathlessly on what's going to happen in Manhattan, when would we cross that line? Because it, it did feel expected to me. Special Counsel Jack Smith racked up some really important victories, both in the Mar-a-Lago documents case and in the January sixth investigation. So Mar-a-Lago, which my lawyerly opinion is, is the real freight train coming at him. Again, always I'm trying so hard to sort of think of things in the moment they happened rather than now. But he futzes around. Is that it? Futz? Yes. Futzes around that works. for, you know, like over a year. But then there's this moment where he just 
unequivocally chooses criminality, which is what the false declaration and the subpoena. And he's having conversations with his lawyer, thinking it's fine. Those very conversations now, unless Evan Corcoran, the lawyer, took the fifth, he was ordered because of the crime fraud exception. So a court said, not only are they can't you use attorney-client privilege, but I've listened to those conversations. They are evidence of a crime. So, you know, imagine what they are. And he had to tell the grand jury all about it. It seems like he's really approaching the finish line of a very strong case, the documents case. Any thoughts about what's coming next and what Trump, again, if he, you know, thought about it, should fear most? I totally agree with you on the documents case. That seems the most cut and dry. You know, there's a period of time where everyone was like, um, ah, well, you know, because Biden had some documents and Pence had some documents yeah, that that right. would muddy for Trump. But, you know, I think looking back now, it's very clear that that, in fact, has hurt Trump significantly in, in terms of the conduct around the discovery of the documents. I mean, again, I'm not a lawyer, but like the obstruction elements of this are fairly clear. I don't even think Trump's like kind of disputing it all that much. He's like, I, I you know, these are my documents. And I'm like, yeah. no, they weren't. I declassified him in my mind, right? <laughs> I do like that excuse where he's like, I thought about it and therefore. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that one seems like a real problem for him. I mean, all these seem like real problems. The Fulton County one seems like a real problem. There's like multiple tapes. I'm curious just sort of to see how they manage it all, right? Like this is not happening in a vacuum. He could be in courthouses in like the weeks leading up to the Iowa caucus to testify or to like have to sit there and listen to like, you know, the case against him. And it's just one weird uncharted waters here. I just am very curious to see how they navigate this. How much time and money is going to have to spend on legal resources? Who's representing these guys? I can't even keep track of all the lawyers. It's insane. Yeah. We think about this one thing with Bragg, but he's going to be like in the open field, bleeding from different wounds, kind of reeling from Cordell score, not to mention, by the way, E. Jean Carroll, which is coming in up in a weeks. week or two. Right. Yeah. Two, he's got it. Does he not show and take a default judgment? Is that possible? Is that Harry, let me ask you that yeah. because he could he could just skip it. He could take a default judgment on liability and fight about damages. Oh, then that's yeah. what he'll do. Maybe, but that's that'll be pretty big. But yeah, I mean that's, you know, the judge is dead set against him. He's made some great rulings for her. And then there's two cases now, uh, the defamation, but also a new sexual assault one under that new New York law. And the New York AG civil case, even the civil cases by, you know, members of Congress. You know, it just seems to me not just the Teflon is off, but I mean, he's just going to be a really wounded figure. And so I'm, again, trying to think of the time. It's like, well, this is the first one. I don't think it'll be last, Bragg. But the main thing is, think about this now in September. We saw how, like contemptuous and bored and however, I don't know how you thought he looked at the indictment, but now another time, another time, another time, it's, he's just going to look like career criminal, right? I was just going to say, that's what the Republicans are. And we talked about this a minute ago. That's what they're yeah. counting on, right? They're counting on everybody else to do this for them. The Republican politicians, the other ones who want to run, for instance, they're just going to sit back and, I mean, that's what DeSantis is doing, right? And the others, is, they're just, let's sit back, let's say bad things about Alvin Bragg, let's say bad things about Jack Smith, we'll do that. But let's also say prayers of thanks for them at dinner with our family every single night, <laughs> because they're going to dispense with this problem for us. That's their hope. But I don't know, because our country sort of got over the whole, let's cover every word of what Trump says thing. But We've never had a president get ready to go to prison. So I don't know. Does that put him center stage again at all the right times for him to be like, look, they're all against me because I'm the only one on your side. 
it's possible. Yeah. It could be that it's just, it simplifies it in a way for him, right? Like so much incoming that he, you know, he does obviously like being the center of attention, but his campaign essentially becomes a them versus me, very binary choice that is very simple. Which is very different than what it what it has always been and why it's been effective, which has been, it's them versus us. Right, this right. is them versus me. Yeah. All this messy, I'm your salvation. That's I'm fatal your, for yeah. him, potentially. I know. Why so? Could flesh that out, please, Jason. Well, because most people haven't paid off a porn star and risk going to uh, prison as a result. Oh, I so see. he's going to have to, I mean, it's a lot easier to say to people, hey, look, if they can say that I can't say that, then you can get fired from your job for saying this thing that is impolitic. You know, it's a lot harder to be like, hey, look, if I can go to prison for paying off a porn star that I had an extramarital affair with, <laughs> yeah. it could happen to you, too. I'm not saying he can't do it. I'm saying yeah. it's a little bit higher of a bar to clear. And by the way, for all the money he's raised, et cetera, he hasn't drawn the crowds, right? They don't seem to have shown up on Moss so far for him. Hmm. Well, not that many people saw Gallagher at the end. At some point, your act <laughs> just gets it just gets tired. I think that he's still trying to use that same MO of if, if, if this can happen to me, it can happen to you. And I, too, always found the logic of that ever since the Mar-a-Lago classified documents. I was like, yeah, if we took top secret nuclear secrets home, they could come after us, too. You're right. Like, I didn't understand the lo his logic there. But I think that the people, you know, when you do these MOSs with people at his crowds, they still feel that it's the political prosecution and they're just trying to take him down. So I don't know that they're paying close attention to the nuances. Let me just ask about one figure in legal terms, but in, you know, general terms. Mark Meadows. So now he's been ordered to testify. How do you solve a problem like Mark Meadows? Do you give him immunity, et cetera? He's really a combination of luck and good counseling. He's really stayed out of trouble, but he's always struck me as the most important player here after Trump. And he could blow it wide open, no? Yes. <laughs> no, he's extremely critical and it's been... There, it's been noticed how little he's actually been in the news yeah. uh, around the stuff. I mean, you read all these things about Pence and other aides, but Meadows has been kind of under the radar. You know, he still is a player in, in these circles. So, you know, it remains to be seen how cooperative he would want to be. Is that right, Sam? Like, what are his, what are his, because you can sort of divide Trump land into totally right. loyal, go down with the ship and people who want a future. Like, for example, Pat Philbin or Pat Cipollone. Who is Meadows? So that's a question that I think uh, even people close to Meadows are kind of trying to answer. <laughs> so it's like difficult to know. You, you know, he's not widely considered to be the most trustworthy person he has a lot of enemies but he is involved in this new think tank slash advocacy apparatus that's aligned with trump there's you know recognition that he sees a future in politics for himself so he's not in the business of burning bridges and he's kept his head down yeah he could have to your point written a book or you know, done a bunch of stuff that would have really offended trump land but he hasn't and so the suspicion is that he wants to keep relations good you know what? There's so much more to talk about here, but I actually want to husband our time, our, our dwindling time, to ask Allison about a big event coming next week. One of the things that, that's not Trump, but it is Trump. And we have the Fox versus Dominion trial opening statements and the like. Do you see it as going forward? Is there a settlement? How bad is it for Fox? How big is it in the whole history of, you know, American media and defamation law? What's your thoughts? 
Well, I don't look at it from the legal terms like you yeah. do. And I'd be interested to know if you think that it's too late for a settlement or what you think is going to happen if it goes forward. Never too late for a settlement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and generally Fox settles. Fox settles these things. Oh, they'll want to. And the reason they could here, they're dead to rights, but Dominion's really reached high on damages. So, I mean, if they're, I think somebody at Fox, Viet Din, is saying, we got to offer them like a north of a billion dollars, but, you know, anything to get out of it and a billion dollars, hard to walk away from. But forget law, just this moment in America media. Well, I feel as though they've just been finally exposed. Yeah. I don't think any of this is new. A lot of people say, well, you know, in the Roger Ailes era, this wouldn't have happened. This was Roger's playbook. I worked there for many years. And what I was told all the time, all the time, the mission statement was, think about the viewers. Think about what the viewers want. Think about the audience. You can't lose the audience. And that was the raison d'etre at Fox. And it still is. It has nothing to do with facts. Nothing to do with solid sources, incredible sources. You can put on any crackpot you want because that's just their opinion. Yeah, I can't exactly. control their opinion. We report, you decide. All of that stuff was always the MO there. So this isn't new. It was worry about the viewers. Whatever you do, don't bleed viewers. And that's my quick, that'll be my quick question, Sam and Jason, because I, I actually just called an audible on this, but are they just going to go back to it? You know, not be so stupid as to, you know, have a paper record that they know it's lies. But are is it basically the same kind of pandering faux news as they did before? Or is there some way in which, you know, Fox is chastised? Or I guess I, I didn't mean that as a rhetorical question, but as it comes out of my mouth, it's kind of feeling that way. Anyway, what are your thoughts? I do TV every now and then, but I've never worked in TV. Yeah. And so, like, it's interesting to hear you talk about the sort of religiosity of the numbers and how that drives everything you do and can almost overwhelm your editorial decisions. And if that is the case, and I, I have no reason to doubt it, then, you know, it's hard to see how you aren't captive in the future, right? Like if this is the guiding principle, you can't just like stop making your guiding principle overnight. Now, Harry, you might be right. They may decide to use signal instead of text, but um, it seems to me that they will continue to do something that will ultimately, first and foremost, increase audience share. I have a couple of thoughts on it. The first is, I think if we've learned anything from the last several years of the way that Fox has done their primetime lineup is that it's sort of like, not to use too many football analogies in here, but <laughs> it's sort of like being a running back when Patrick Mahomes is your quarterback. Like, look, they've had a, a various group of people in there, but like- I actually followed that, yeah. They got a formula and like Andy Reid with the Chiefs has a great offense and, and there's all these great running backs that come out of it because, oh, okay, well, you know, Bill O'Reilly, uh, he finally got to a point where people had heard too many scandals. What's that bow tie guy? Can we put the bow tie guy on? And then the bow tie guy is a huge deal. So my guess is, is that as they cycle through new replacement level white men or barely above replacement level, possibly. Uh, now I'm mixing into a baseball analogy, but <laughs> they'll say, all right, now you just don't text about this. You know, just don't talk about it. We all know how it works. So that's the first thing. So I think not much will change, but the faces that you see on TV, mate, yeah. but they'll say the same bad stuff. And then the other thought that I have about it is, you know, thank goodness for like civil justice and trial lawyers, because they are 
so easy. And look, I'm a former trial lawyer in the brief period that I was a lawyer, but like, it's so easy for people to like make ambulance chasing jokes and that kind of thing. But there's a reason that Ford Explorers don't like flip over anymore. And there's a reason that it's really rare to see somebody smoking in a restaurant now and all that kind of, and it's because in major parts of American life, trial lawyers were like, oh, the government is not equipped to actually change this part of our world. So we will bring a lawsuit and 12 reasonable people will take this. And then a major industry will have to change. And that's what the lawyers, I don't even know who represents Dominion, but that's what the lawyers for Dominion and what the plaintiffs Dominion are doing is they are going to make changes in that world that the government can't make because of the First Amendment, but, but juries can. And so the civil justice system is a, is a good thing. There you have it. And yeah, I mean, you made an interesting point. I don't know whether it's Isles or Murdoch, who, who the real shyster in charge is, but the notion is that they're, they're actually going to try to defend, oh, it was the reporters, but, you know, Fox is Fox. So I think it's going to be a huge train wreck for them. I mean, just to be clear, when you have a crackpot on your air and you're a real news network, you have to fact check them. Right. Or you say, right. that's not true. What you just said, these voting machines were not made and controlled by Venezuela. You have a responsibility to your viewers to fact check the nonsense. And they don't do that. They never have done that. Or they do it and ignore it because it's, quote, bad for business. I can see why it's hard to in real time fact check. I mean, as much as people want it, it can be hard. I thought the distinction here was that it wasn't just that they weren't doing real time fact checking. They were actively booking people who they thought privately were unreliable liars. Yes. That is a step further than lacking real-time facts. That's true, because everybody likes to watch a train wreck. No, but that's going to be their defense. Oh, they were just expressing their opinion, but they went farther. They presented as facts, stuff they knew was fiction. You know, that's, yes. that's not good. <laughs> All right, it is now time for a Spirited Debate, brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's Spirited Debate, the question bubbles up around the difference between champagne and sparkling wine, and we're more than happy to explain. First things first, champagne is a type of sparkling wine, but not all sparkling wine is champagne. We could leave it at that, but that's not our style. So here we go. A sparkling wine can only be called Champagne if it comes from the region of Champagne in France. Any other bubbly produced outside of Champagne is called sparkling wine. In this exclusive region of northern France, three types of grapes, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier, come together to produce what will become the Champagne you know and love. Champagne production is controlled by strict laws, so all of those grapes we just mentioned must be hand-picked. It's a labor of love, right? The other difference comes from the fermentation process, specifically the second fermentation process that produces champagne signature bubbles. This time-consuming fermentation takes place in the bottle and is known as the traditional method, whereas some sparkling wines are fermented in a tank. Now take a wine like Cava, which is made in the champagne method, but because it's produced outside the region of Champagne, it's classified as, yep, you guessed it, sparkling wine. So if it's sparkling wine you want, Total Wine & More has a huge selection, including Prosecco, which comes from the Veneto region of Italy, Sec, from Austria and Germany, and Cremant, which comes from France, just outside of the Champagne region. But all these sparkling wines have something in common. 
There are amazing bottles that are available at Total Wine & More for you to take home, pop open, and compare, not only to each other, but to champagne as well. Happy shopping and happy popping. Cheers. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right. What I really wanted to talk about that has got me totally in a lather is Tennessee. So I think everyone out there you know, knows the basics, but a little over a week after another horrific elementary school shooting kills three children, the Republican supermajority in the state took some real action. They kicked out two of three people, the young African-Americans who had protested the way, you know, minorities in a legislature will. You do creative stuff. And let's start there. What's up with the Tennessee Republican supermajority? They can do whatever the hell they want. Why would they stomp on, you know, create what is clearly now a national black eye when they can just ignore them and do whatever they want anyway? I served in a state legislature yeah. with a Republican majority, uh, and then I was Secretary of State when there was a Republican supermajority. So here's what I thought about while watching this this week. First, unrelated to that, I saw somewhere where somebody took a clip of Representative Pearson speaking right after his expulsion, and they just put it in black and white. And you watch the clip, and you put it in black and white, and it is so- it's 1965, it's, right? Yeah, it's like, knocks you over, right? Because you're like, yeah. wow, this could easily be from then. Setting that aside for a second and setting aside the obvious racism of the fact that Gloria Johnson was not expelled and the other two were, what I would say is the entire instinct of a Republican supermajority in a Southern state legislature, something I have a lot of familiarity with, to try and put in their place legislators who they think don't abide by decorum is obviously racist in this case, but even when race isn't involved, it is this very precious, very soft idea that swells tend to have about how important the thing they're doing is. Because I can remember like being in the legislature and there being fights over things like whether women had to cover their shoulders. Like Republicans who felt very passionate about this. I can remember one time I got to the legislature and I won't give you the whole long boring story, but there was a, a rural legislator who was saying one thing to his hometown paper and it wasn't true. And it, you know, that paper didn't have a reporter at the Capitol. They just basically printed his press release. So I did this crazy novel thing that no one had ever thought to do or which is I called the newspaper even though I wasn't from there and you would have thought that I showed up naked at that dude's house because people were like we do not do that here and so they have all of these aren't we important we have these fancy ceilings and this stained glass this must be church we must have to behave in a certain way attitude about things that they are really tone deaf and this happens when it's Democratic or Republican. Legislators are deeply, particularly state legislators, particularly tone deaf as to the fact that most of the people who they represent don't know their name and don't care. Not that that's a good thing, but they really, they are just so soft and so precious that it's just sad. And people know their name around the country now, right? Yeah. It is kind of like a Falbus or Maddox moment. Do they know they've messed up? Let me put it that way. Or is it no. like, fuck it, we, this is what we wanted to do? Well, I'm sure that the real winner who brought this expulsion motion in the first place, I would really be surprised, Harry, if he won his race by more by less than 10 points. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. like it's, it's gerrymandering and it's that kind of thing. So anyway, I just, a lot of this is like, they're not thinking outside the building. If it's anything like the legislature I served in, the most often used term 
there by people who have been there a lot and want to act like they know everything is I've been in the building for X number of years. Like mm -hmm. in the building is a term of art. And and I, that's where a lot of this comes from. Yeah. I'll just pick up on that because I'm like literally editing, not while I'm on the podcast, but right before I came <laughs> on the podcast, a piece by a reporter for us, Natalie Allison, who she's not political now, but she worked at the Tennessean for years. On Twitter, she's been writing all these things that are like remarkable about the legislature, things that you would be like shocked, you know, crazy stuff. There's a, an infamous incident where there's someone urinated on someone's chair and like, you know, someone got thrown into an, put their office in a closet because they were disruptive. It's like, you know, petty bullshit, right? But to Jason's point, I mean, this is what happens when you have incredibly inoculated gerrymandered districts where like the only thing that matters is if you can prevail in a primary. And I thought the most important thing that came out, the most telling thing, I should say, that came out of the expulsion vote was just the margin of it. It was like 75 to 25. It was like crazy margin. It wasn't even close for the two black male lawmakers, I should say. Those numbers are ridiculous. That tells you everything about that statehouse, which is that it's driven by one predominant theory, which is you cannot lose your primary. That's it. And everything is done through that prison. Well, there's a couple of silver linings if you need them. And that is that um, last night I interviewed Gloria Johnson, the 60-year-old white legislator who was saved from expulsion by one vote. And she explained that the recourse for this, and I don't fully understand it because it's, you know, Tennessee politics. So I don't know if it's the Nashville City Council or their own county like board of supervisors, but they can have a vote soon to reinstate them. So the two who were expelled mm. can be reinstated by this other body. And in the case of the two black legislators, they're democratically controlled in their counties, this board. So they can be reinstated sooner than later. And so we've just gone through this exercise in futility. I don't even know in what, at you know, obviously taxpayer expense and energy and time expense. And so they can be and will be and expect to be reinstated. That's one thing. Second is we had on our panel last night a woman who pointed this out. So I don't want to take credit for it because I just thought it was so insightful. They're now folk heroes, as we've been talking about. They speak in sort of impressive, soaring ways, and nobody knew their names a week ago. And now everybody does because of social media and because of their speeches and the power of their fiery rhetoric. And they've become folk heroes. They're bound for much bigger greatness than the Tennessee State House now, thanks to what the Republicans did. Yeah, no, they can come back and urinate on the chair. One second, because I've been wondering this too. I've heard that they can be reinstated fairly quickly as well. But my question is, what's to stop the body from just expelling them again? I mean, we could be in a perpetual loop here, and I don't think that's something you should totally rule out as happening. Well, they'd have to come up with something new because the at least the the rules say you cannot be expelled for the same thing twice. Ah. Allison's point is a really good one about how they can just come back. That goes to my point about this is all inside the building stuff. And I guarantee you that the Republicans who came up with the idea to expel them in the first place are mystified at the idea that the rest of the country cares because in their mind, they're like, well, they can come right back. We're putting them in time out. That's what they think they were doing from the beginning. I promise you. Uh, oh, my God. That's actually what, one of the sadder things I've heard, because I would have thought at least they would have thought, uh-oh, once it went national like this, we messed it up. See, but they become folk heroes on the bad side, too. It's yeah. a base-off. By the way, 
1965, Julian Bond happened to him. Supreme Court unanimously said, uh-uh. So I, I think there could be a, a lawsuit as well, but I won't be lawyerly in this episode. All right, man, we're out of time except for Talking Five, a feature that I'm going to do an alternative one for Jason's sake. It also occurs to me as a podcast host here, always uh, push towards sports metaphors. But the basic question is the closely watched, vitriolic, and record-breaking expense of Wisconsin Supreme Court election. You know, what's your takeaway in five words or fewer, but alternate question, new rules in baseball this season, discuss. Okay, so anyone can choose that one, but five words or fewer, who, who wants it? I'll give you both real quick. Five words or less on Wisconsin. It's uh, the most important court thing this week. I don't know if that was five words. That was not uh, five. That was six, over five. Six. Yeah, whatever. Whatever? This is whatever? B- bigger than the Trump thing uh, in my mind. <laughs> yeah. And then the baseball thing. It's awesome, man. Baseball's already awesome. This is just making it more awesome. Everybody out there should be watching more baseball. I'm with that. That was way more than five words. Baseball is awesome. It's still awesome. There you go. Baseball awesome. Wisconsin court awesome. There you go. My five for baseball is pitch clock good. Mm -hmm. That's three. And for Wisconsin, abortion still matters. That's three, too. Wow, look at that. Yeah. With room to spare. And you did them both. I was going to say that same thing. Abortion ripple effect, Wisconsin. <sighs> Baseball, I don't know hot dogs. <laughs> Can I just say, I feel, as someone who's never written a headline, I feel at a distinct disadvantage in this game. <laughs> this was very hard. You know what? That's a dirty secret of journalism. You never get to write your headline. Maybe we can discuss that in the future. I'm going Wisconsin Supreme Court, politicized court, but good result. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Allison, Jason, and Sam. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content breaking down the big legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with University of Chicago law professor Omri Ben-Shahar about the current political crisis in Israel. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.